It's a good day. Amen? Well, as you recall, more than likely, hopefully, last week we began a two-part series with part one, the characteristics of a mature church. You might recall in that message we said that Webster's explains maturity as full development. What's more, we also talked about what is obvious when it comes to maturity. With it often comes success. Without it, unfortunately, often comes the lack of success. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and through 13, last week we examined two characteristics. You'll remember that the first was biblical leadership. That is, the teaching pastor, surrounded by a plurality of elders or overseers. All three of those terms, remember, we've discussed in multiple messages, that they're synonymous. They're the same term, the same person, when it comes to New Testament biblical leadership. These are men. And let me emphasize men. When it comes to biblical leadership from the pulpit, from uh, a collective involvement of leadership, leading the church, men who are gifted in teaching, able to refute error while leading people in doctrinal discipleship. Doctrinal discipleship was the second characteristic that we discussed. That is the responsibility a biblically qualified and called pastor, elder, overseers to equip the saints for the work of the service. This is fundamental and foundational for success. What's more, why is it important? Last week we discussed why it's important within the text. That we might grow in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That benefit is essential in and of itself. But there's more. There's more benefit that Paul lays out here when it comes to the results of a a priority concerning a mature and healthy church. Remember last week we briefly discussed what it looks like for an immature church. In many respects, I would call it This is the patient zero, so to speak, for the virus of culture. Often the church looks at the culture, and in some respects the culture does influence the church, and we'll talk about that today. But the problem lies within the church and its lack of maturity in many respects, which leads to the problems within the culture and within the church. If the church makes a habit of constantly caving in to the culture or allowing tradition to usurp the authority of of Scripture, what do we expect will be the results? Now, as for this morning, we're going to look at three more characteristics for maturity in the church. Even so, before we get there, I want us to see a couple consequences of failure when we refuse at times or neglect 
to look to these types of characteristics. Several examples that fall directly in line with our characteristics that we'll look at today. Characteristics that can serve to protect and fortify the church against failures like these, which I'll communicate now. First off, when it comes to biblical discernment, which will be our first characteristic, it seems almost non-existent in many respects when the church of our day continues to struggle and wrestle while the lines are blurred with many different topics such as homosexuality or the ordaining of women as pastors or when abortion is seen as a female right or Critical social justice is advocated for as the primary means of righteousness within the church. Or perhaps it's a wide way passive approach to ministry that disallows any form of offense. On the flip side though, what about when truth is on display yet void of compassion? The church throughout history and even into our day and age at times has struggled with falling too much into the trap of legalism. Maybe it's a lack of hospitality or concern and love and compassion for those that are in need. Maybe it's a lack of initiative to reach for the lost. A lack of concern to put oneself at times in in circumstances that are uncomfortable and and uneasy because of the sake of compassion and love for the lost. And then finally, what about a church that forgets her collective involvement? Maybe she suffers with a lack of humility as she often is more concerned about what's in it for me rather than how might I serve others. As for this morning, those are the three characteristics that we will look at. Biblical discernment, truthful compassion, and collective involvement. All of them play a role in a healthy and mature church. Now, first and foremost, let's not forget the foundation has to be laid in biblical leadership. Called, qualified Pastors, elders, overseers that are committed to doctrinal discipleship. That's what we build upon the foundational with. Brick upon brick, as we'll even talk about here shortly. All of those, without a doubt, will play a role in building our unity and maturity. Nonetheless, we don't stop there, do we? Remember from last week. The fullness of Christ is our measure. Now, in light of that, obviously we fall short at times. Nonetheless, does that keep us from pursuing what God desires for his church? Let it never be that we be found complacent pursuing a healthy In mature church, by God's grace, the Lord desires a discerning church, understanding the difference between right and wrong, 
a church filled with truth and love and a church working together for the common good. This is what he wants for his church. As a matter of fact, some of you might remember, that's the theme behind this entire passage. Christ has designed the church for maturity. With that said, I have a question for us all, which I'll ask, I'll ask several times throughout the day. Will you pursue it? I'm praying that last week's message and this week's message will serve to challenge us all in this matter of what it looks like to pursue a healthy, mature church in Christ. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The title of today's message is The Characteristics of a Mature Church, Part 2. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 is our text. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. Maybe this, or, no, please don't be dismissed. <laughs> Did you hear that that was coming out of my mouth right there? <laughs> please do not be dismissed. You may be seated. <laughs> well, that's a good way for a pastor to start. But you know what? We just read the scripture and Scripture is enough, amen? But allow me to expound it a little bit. <laughs> our first characteristic here this morning, or our third in the overall series, is number one, biblical discernment. And we'll see this in verse 14. Now, up until this point, especially given verse 13, we can certainly infer that Unity is a benefit of maturity. We saw that in verse 13. However, here in verse 14, Paul begins to become even more specific regarding the results of maturity. Notice he says, as a result. That's to say, with strong biblical leadership and doctrinal discipleship, a church cannot be like children, as he says here in the text. Like children in what way, you might ask? Well, if you've been around children for any given amount of time, 
you know what he's getting at here. Where the faith of a child is something that we should all imitate. There's another aspect of children which leaves them lacking. An aspect that often lends itself to unfortunately at times be manipulated and to be led in wrong directions, so to speak. An aspect of immaturity, an aspect of naivety. Although with maturity and development, every child, every human being grows in their awareness of potential dangers that are on the horizon or even that are right in front of them. Paul's even contrasting this within this passage. Notice the mature man from verse 13 with the child in verse 14, which is an example of the consequence of the lack of maturity. This illustration makes perfect sense. There's a reason why a child can be manipulated. The same strength that they have to believe when guided properly and in truth is also a weakness when not grounded in truth and guided properly. Now, the apostle continues to enforce the significance of this with another picture. And I want you to see it in the text. Look when he says that we are not tossed like children. He goes on to say, they're tossed here and there by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine. Now this picture communicates a sense of a lack of any control. It's like a ship In the midst of a hurricane or a leaf, in the midst of a tornado, there's no engine and there's no rake to determine where they're going. The fierce winds and the raging waves are what determine their ultimate fate. My friends, this is a picture of a church without maturity. An immature church. As for Ephesus, as Paul's writing this letter to them, this would have been a critical and essential challenge for them. A good challenge. Going back even to our introductory message to this letter, we remember some of the things that they struggled with. An overemphasis upon the supernatural outside of Scripture. Or they certainly struggled with ethnic hatred amongst Jews and Gentiles. Paul's writing this letter to them to fortify them and strengthen them in order that they are biblically discerning, spiritually mature, protected against error. As for us, biblical leadership and doctrinal discipleship will go a long way in building our discernment. As for the waves of critical social justice or the winds of same-sex attraction, many churches are being led astray, adrift, with no control 
in light of that, as we consider ourselves in, in our day and age, will we live in a passage like Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Often people ask the question, what is the will of God? I love to take them to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and verse 1 in front of it. Are you presenting your body as a living sacrifice unto God? Are you renewing your mind on a daily basis in order that you might know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? What's more? What about when men attempt to propagate a false message of peace at all costs? A message that never offends or challenges? Praise the Lord that the gospel offends. If it not for that, I would still be left in my sin, and you too. When that happens, will we live in Romans chapter 16, verse 17? When Paul says there, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Be biblically discerned brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, maybe for some, hopefully not many here today, people think, well, what's the big deal? Can't we just get along to go along? Well, I mentioned this last week, but that is a recipe for disaster. In many respects, the reason the church is at where she's at today is because of a mentality like that. My friends, why is it so essential and critical for biblical discernment to flourish within a church in order that she's healthy and mature? Well, certainly, as we've just looked at, in order that she's grounded in order that she's not tossed by every wind of doctrine without control and having biblical discernment to understand what is true and what is right. That's a vital reason in and of itself. Likewise, though, it's also because we fully understand the powerful enemy in which we face. An enemy who is prodding the walls of the church, looking for a crack, a crack that will turn into a massive gaping hole, a massive gaping hole that you better believe the enemy forces will come in. We must be like the prophet Ezekiel when he said, to be a watchman on a wall. We must be vigilant, vigilant and diligent to say, not on my watch. We will be biblically discerning. Now, I want you to see a connection that Paul makes here. 
to emphasize the significance of this spiritual danger. Three elements in verse 14, all of them working together to express this demonic influence that's at stake. First, notice in verse 14 when he says, the trickery of men. This is a word within the original context that really relates to gambling or dice playing. It certainly conveys a sense of taking advantage of someone. That's the first word. All of these connect together. The second, you can see, is craftiness. This word always conveys a sense of danger, a sense of wickedness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul uses it to describe Satan's deception of Eve. And then the third word, deceitfully scheming, once again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul uses it again. I want you to hear it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. When he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even in this letter, in chapter 6, in the armor of God section, Paul uses this to describe Satan's power and our need for the armor of God to be protected. Beloved, I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to. You know it. We are in a battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness who desire to tear down and destroy the church which Christ shed his blood for. We don't have the luxury to rest. We can rest when we go home to be with the Lord. Amen? So then, how do we do that? Well, I got good news for you. It's not rocket science. It's as simple as can be. We must know more of Christ, and we must know more of his character and his nature, which is revealed within the 66 books of the Bible. This is the answer for biblical discernment. This is our sword of the Spirit, our helmet of salvation, our breastplate of righteousness, our belt of truth. Another reason for us to be committed to biblical leadership. Why? In order that we can live in a passage such as 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. 
When John says there, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. My friends, you can't test the spirits if you're not mature. Spurgeon communicated the massive importance of discernment as follows. When he said discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between what is right and almost right. Wouldn't it be so easy? It's, and it is easy to tell the difference between clear distinctions. But Satan's a master of disguise. The truth often slips in under the cover of darkness with a sliver of truth. And the church, if she's not grounded in biblical leadership, doctrinal discipleship, and herself pursuing as a whole biblical discernment, she's also often tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that crack becomes a hole that often is hard to patch. And unfortunately, in many respects, leads to total destruction. And we've seen this throughout church history and even in our day and age. You know how the game works. We must be vigilant. We must be diligent. We must be like a watchman on the wall. Not just as this is another reminder when it comes to our, the importance of biblical leadership and qualified pastors, but it, it continues to challenge the saints and your responsibility. To be discerning. Amen? Paul said that not just is it the pastors and teachers. They're called to be that protector. But they're called to equip the saints for the work of the service. A responsibility that we all have. Now. Hopefully a verse like this causes us to be champions of truth. Nonetheless, hopefully with equal importance. It also causes us to never be a champion of truth at the expense of love. And that leads us to our second characteristic here this morning. Or fourth overall. Truthful compassion. Truthful compassion. Look again at verse 15 with me. He says, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So far, we've surely emphasized the importance of truth. And let's be honest, we can't emphasize that enough. Even the verb in the original language, speaking here, 
conveys a sense of a, a lifestyle commitment to speaking truth. John 14, 6. Jesus is the truth, amen? All the more reason for us to be wholeheartedly sold out to speaking truth. For any Orthodox Christian, you're not going to get any argument there. That being said, though, it's not always easy, is it? In our flesh, we don't like crossing the pain line. We talked about that concept in our series on honest evangelism and that book from Rico Tice. It hurts to cross the pain line and to speak truth. Truth be told, we don't always get a pat on the back or an attaboy when we speak truth. Unfortunately, at times, it actually leads to persecution. You been there? I understand. It's hard. It's difficult. It's frustrating. At times, it even happens with believers, not just unbelievers. That even adds to the difficulty of it. Nonetheless, I said it before, I'll say it again. Praise the Lord that there are believers committed to speaking truth in love. A healthy, mature church will not shy away from this. The Apostle Paul, when dealing with the wayward church in Galatia, his problem child, said this in chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Did you hear that, beloved? He said, if I, were not, if I were serving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. Wow. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? All things considered, though, especially given the context of this passage, the maturity of the church, what other option do we have if we love the church in the same way that Christ loves the church and gave his life for the church? Look down at verse 25 in the same chapter of verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Just that reality in and of itself that we are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are my neighbor. We are collectively united as one body this should drive us to speak truth to live truth 
what's more, especially when it comes to potentially destructive ideas that can infiltrate the church. This is our heart's desire. This is what God desires for the church. In Paul's letter to Galatia, he said to those destructive ideas that would infiltrate the church, let them be accursed. That's some powerful words of truth. All that to say, though, yes, love without truth is as counterfeit as cubic zirconium is to a diamond. Just the same, though, truth without love is as cold as ice. Amen. We've all been there. For the mature Christian, for the mature church, they're linked. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Look down at verse 29 of chapter 4. When he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. A healthy church, a mature church, will be sold out to committing and speaking truth, yet always striving that it would convey grace just as much. Now, let me pause and say, don't allow that to say something that it's not. Remember, Galatians 4.16, Paul spoke with truth and grace to that church, and yet he still created enemies. You can't have one without the other. Having said that, how do we put it into action? I think it comes down to always examining our motives in our heart when we're speaking truth. Ask yourself, is the circumstance in which you speak truth essential and needed for your brother, for your sister, for the body as a whole? Or is it only serving your own personal interests? James tells us, be slow to speak. Amen? Quick to listen. Obviously, the same truth applies outside of the church for those who are not believers, even for us here today. If there is anyone in this room who physically sits within this physical church, yet in your heart, know that you are not a part of the spiritual body of Christ, I would speak with truth because I love you and tell you it is appointed unto man to die and face judgment. Jesus said, unless you repent, 
likewise you will perish. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Nevertheless, when it comes to truthful compassion within the church, I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians. Keep your hand in Ephesians. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Sometimes us preachers can get excited about fancy illustrations when the best illustrations are right within the living word of God. And I want you to see what I believe to be a beautiful illustration of what is truthful compassion. What does it look like? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me. I want to read verses 4 through 8. Paul here says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, not with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. This passage has it all. It has it all. From the truth perspective, what does he say? They were not concerned with pleasing men. They were going to speak truth. Whether it crossed the pain line or not. Concerning flattery, I want you to hear a quote from the early church father, John Christostom. He said this, and I quote, those who are in love with applause have their spirits starved not only when they are blamed offhand, but even when they fail to be constantly praised, end quote. Beloved, don't starve for the applause of men. It will hamper your ability to speak truth. However, what else do we see in this passage? This perfect illustration for truthful compassion. They spoke with gentleness. And I love this illustration. In the same way that a mother tenderly cares for her child. Nursing her child. Gentleness. Truth. Not afraid of men yet with gentleness and compassion. The perfect illustration for what Paul is communicating here in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Turn back with me to chapter 4 of Ephesians. I want you to see another key point. Notice he says again in verse 16, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Emphasizing all aspects of our growth and maturity. Now, are some aspects of our life easier than others? Of course. It's a whole lot easier to speak truth and to grow in maturity in words of exhortation when you know you're not crossing the pain line. But it's difficult, as we've discussed, to speak truth in all aspects when perhaps at times it carries a consequence of confrontation or difficulty. Anyhow, though, for us as a body, are we growing, are you growing in all aspects of our walk with Christ, of our maturity, of our health as a church? More than that, do we understand and know why we desire in all aspects to pursue a healthy and mature church? This is the motivation behind it, but it's all. It's Christ. As Paul says here in the passage, he is the head. He is our head. As he says in chapter 1, Christ is the head to all things. All things are in subjection to him. In light of that, consider our normal lives. Would we ever pick and choose our obedience to certain aspects of our secular or natural heads? Our employers? People in our lives or organizations? Oh, I think I'll be obedient here. I think I'll speak truth here, but not here. I think I'll demonstrate compassion here, but not here. At the end of the day, this is what God requires of us as a mature church. To be a means of encouragement to the body of Christ, speaking truthfully and with compassion. Along with being a light to the world, the dark, lost, dead world in which we operate. Will you pursue it? This is what Christ asks of his church. This is the challenge once again for us all. And this is the need for us all. Which leads us to our final characteristic. Number five overall or number three here this morning. Collective involvement. Look again with me at verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. The word of God reads, For from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This collective emphasis has been on display throughout. 
We saw it in the unity that was at the forefront of chapter 4. We saw it in the diversity relating to the gifts for the common good of the body. Here in verse 16, look at it again. The collective priority. Several phrases throughout this one verse. Look with me. The whole body. Every joint supplies. Each individual part. The growth of the body. And the building up of itself. Not to mention. Look again. For another key theme here, at the beginning of chapter 4, the last two words of verse 2. In love. And then to close out this section of verse 16, the last two words. In love. Another reminder for us of the original writers. A device that they would use in communicating an important truth of encapsulating that passage in love, in love, with unity and collective involvement intertwined throughout the whole picture. Collective love and concern for the body is key for Paul here to communicate. As each ligament of a body serves to protect the structure of the body. Each individual believer plays a role as a sort of connective tissue in the health of the body. Now, ruptures and tears of those ligaments And deterioration of those ligaments are coming. I can testify to that physically. Although from a spiritual perspective, the health of the body is in the hands of the great physician. This is why we can have confidence in knowing the central theme of this passage again. And living, not just knowing, but living in it. That Christ has designed the church for maturity. In verse 16, he says that he causes the growth of the body. Nothing will ever stop the growth of the true church of Jesus Christ. Amen. And yet, we have a role to play. Like that incomplete construction project that I mentioned last week. The footer's been laid, which is Christ. But there are more bricks to be built upon. And as verse 16 says, fitted together. This is our responsibility. The master foreman has given the instructions and he's commissioned his heralds 
to oversee its implementation. What will you do with his building plans? In love, in love, allow yourself to be persuaded by biblical leadership. His called and qualified pastors and elders and overseers. In love, absorb doctrinal discipleship like a sponge. Love it, cherish it, and hide it in your heart. Why? Why are these two central foundational elements critical? So in love, we practice biblical discernment for the benefit of the body. Always speaking with truthful compassion as the motivation of our hearts. And never forgetting the collective involvement needed for a healthy, mature church. These are our marching orders. What will you do with it? What will we do with it? Amen. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord. As we come to your word, we can be refreshed and renewed constantly and consistently. We have everything we need for the man of God to be complete and equipped for godliness and righteousness. Lord, thank you for your word that challenges us and sanctifies us and renews our minds. Oh, Lord, help us in our often drifting and wandering hearts to be submissive to your word and your instructions for the church. Help us, Lord, by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be sold out and committed to living for the benefit and health of the church, which you so dearly love. For it's in the name of our risen, exalted, ascended Lord and King, Jesus Christ, which we pray.